Thank you all for being here tonight. <coughs> be here as we get ready to close out John. Remember where we've come from last week in John 20. Uh, we finished out these first resurrection appearances and we talked about well, what is John's Pentecost, right? The pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. And remember Jesus, when he gives the Spirit, he says, receive the Spirit and he breathes on them. And then it goes on and, and John lays out his purpose for writing this Gospel. Remember what he says is, all of these signs that I recorded, all of these signs that I recorded, I recorded so that you might believe. And that in believing you might have salvation in his name. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. That's the purpose of this gospel. And it really is the conclusion in many ways of the gospel. And so John 21 is kind of an epilogue to the story. Remember, we had uh, Thomas's climactic confession of Jesus when he sees him. And the Lord says, put your hand in my side. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. The highlight of all of the Gospel of John is Thomas's confession. And then John tells us all these things, all these signs that I talked about were written so that you might believe. And so now we have in John 21 an epilogue it's, it's also, it's kind of strange almost, because it seems like the book would wrap up on that note, doesn't it? He tells his purpose, and he could have stopped right there, and it would have made sense. But I think he has more to say to talk about the church as it's going to continue. That Jesus' resurrection is actually not the end of the story, is it? In some ways, it's the beginning. A new beginning. Jesus was there in the beginning of creation, it says, in the, in the gospel, how it opens. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And when it gets here, after the resurrection, it's a new beginning. Just like Jesus was there at the beginning of creation, he's actually, according to Colossians, the firstborn of the new creation. The firstborn. So here he is, and, and John wants to tell us what's going to happen as the church continues. It's interesting, as we go on, and, and we'll talk about it next week, uh, we don't know Peter's story after the denial, except in tradition, if this story is not included. That's how important it is. That's why I look to this passage so often. Peter's story in our, in our scriptures would end at the place of Peter denying Jesus three times without the story. Think about that. That's the image that lasts of Peter without John 21. And instead, at the end, we have this beautiful restoration that Peter, and of course, tradition has told us, right? He became this rock, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And of course, you know, tradition would also say then eventually the leader of the church in Rome the capital city. So we'll get there and we'll talk about that. But first, Jesus appears to his disciples a third time. It says this in verse 1 of chapter 21. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter 
and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. The disciples are together. So this is important. As we're thinking about the resurrection appearances, this is interesting. Because all four Gospels have resurrection appearances. They talk about Jesus appearing to the disciples. What's interesting is that uh, Mark and Matthew talk about Galilean appearances. Whereas Luke only talks about an appearance in Jerusalem. So you have these different accounts of Jesus appearing to his disciples, kind of his inner circle. But they happen in different places. Right? In Matthew and Mark, it talks about Jesus tells Mary to tell the disciples that Jesus is going to go ahead of them into Galilee. And he'll meet them there. And in fact, of course, they're on a mountain in Galilee when the Great Commission happens in Matthew 28. It says they're in a mountain in Galilee. But we know from Luke that they're in Jerusalem when he appears to them, right? And he, in fact, he even says to them, stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. What's interesting is that John is the only gospel that actually talks about both. That there were Galilean appearances and Jerusalem appearances. And so we saw the Jerusalem appearances in the last couple chapters we talked about, right? That appearing to Mary, and then Mary going to the disciples, and Jesus appearing in their midst, and then breathing out the Holy Spirit. That was in Jerusalem. But now it says they're back <coughs> on the Sea of Tiberias. John's the only a writer to call it that. He's talking about the Sea of Galilee. It was also known as the Sea of Tiberias. So they're on, they're back home, right? They're on the Sea of Galilee, where they, where they lived, right? This is where Peter and Andrew lived. And oddly enough, the sons of Zebedee, they lived there too. This is the only mention, only mention of the sons of Zebedee in the Gospel of John, which is, is unique. Because obviously they're all over the place in the other Gospels, right? You have James, John, and Peter being these three kind of closest people to Jesus throughout the Synoptic Gospels. Here is the only place the sons of Zebedee are explicitly mentioned in the Gospel of John, which is unique. Now what that could be, if you believe that you know, the Apostle John is the author of this book, he remains anonymous until this chapter. He remains kind of this beloved disciple that he uses kind of this anonymous term for himself. I'm the beloved disciple, the disciple that Jesus loved. But interestingly, he does not, outside of using that term, he doesn't talk about him and his brother until this chapter. He doesn't, and, and, and I find odd, he doesn't mention James at all until this chapter. It just calls them the sons of Zebedee. I sometimes wonder if John's grief at the loss of his brothers too much to, to bring up. Remember in Acts, James, his brother is the only apostle recorded to be killed in the New Testament. James is killed by Herod. He's beheaded in Acts. But whatever the case, there's this uniqueness to this story because the disciples are there back in Galilee. They go back home. Now the Gospel of John doesn't tell us why they're back in Galilee. But if we interpret from the other Gospels, Jesus told them to go back. A lot of scholars, interestingly, now I'm not saying these are evangelical scholars, but they say this is actually them being apostate. That they don't have faith. They go back home because they don't know what to do. They're like, well, I, I don't know what to do next. Jesus has come and he appeared to us, but I, I don't know. I just don't buy that. 
I just don't buy that for, for an instant because Jesus appeared to them. And I think they're probably flailing. They may not know what to do, but I have no doubt their faith is strong and secure. And so here in verse 3, what's Peter want to do? Well, he wants to do what he's known, right? He's back home in his home in Galilee. And what did Peter do? He's a fisherman. He's like, well, we're waiting for Jesus. Why don't we go fishing? Right? Verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. So they, they start a fishing trip. It says they went out and got into the boat, and that night, it's nighttime, they caught nothing. So they go out, it's dark, a good time to catch fish, maybe get a jump on the competition in the morning, right? Selling your fish the next day. And they get nothing. These are professionals. They get nothing in their catch. So what happens? Verse 4, But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Again, this highlight between, if this is John, right, our beloved disciple John and Peter, I love this contrast between them because they have different gifts. They have different gifts, don't they? John has this gift of faith. Remember what we saw in, in the, the tomb. Right? It says that John looked in the tomb, and what did he do when he looked in the tomb? It says he believed. John claims in this gospel that he was the first to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Before Mary had Jesus appear to her, John says, I believe. This beloved disciple, I believed when I looked in the tomb. And now here, when he sees, he, they don't know Jesus. Clearly, they don't recognize him. It says so. And what does, what does John do? It says he, he hears what happens, he can see what's going on, and he believes. He has faith. It's his gift. It's his gift. I believe it is the Lord. And what is Peter? Peter is a man of action. He's a, a goer, right? He's one who does. He's got the gift of leadership, Right? He's the one who said, I'm going fishing. He's the one who went to Jesus and said, Jesus, you can't die. And Jesus was like, get behind me, Satan. I was like, whoa, Peter. I guess you were a little, uh, you need to take your foot off the pedal. You're a little going too fast, I think. Right here, Peter, what, when he hears that John says it's the Lord, he jumps out of the boat. He wants to be with him. He needs to be near him. And I can't help but imagine because we know that it hasn't been dealt with yet, the denial. I can't help but imagine that Peter has that guilt. How can I prove to my Lord that I love him? How can I prove that I 
I, I did something wrong. How can I prove that I, I am still devoted to him? Because he jumps out of the boat and runs to him. He wants to be near Jesus, despite his failure, despite his mistake, despite his sin. He wants to be near the Savior. So Peter says he put on his outer garment and he jumps in the water and he just swims. Leaves everyone behind. They're still dealing with this huge haul of fish and he just pieces out on them. He just jumps in the water and swims to shore to be with Jesus. When Simon Peter, excuse me, this is verse 8. The other disciples, right? Peter's already, he's already swum to shore. Right? He's, he's already swam to shore. He's already there. He's, uh, he's with Jesus. But it says this, the other disciples, they came in their little boat. But about 100 yards away, dragging, they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging a net full of fish. So when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid in fish placed on it and bread. This is so interesting to me because they just caught this huge catch of fish that we're going to read in the next couple of verses. 153 fish they just caught. Jesus already has some fish on the fire. They were out all night and they could catch nothing. They could catch nothing. Jesus gives them this miraculous catch. And what's he do? He's already got a meal prepared. Jesus the host. Jesus is a host. He offers them breakfast. Who knows? Maybe it's miraculous. Maybe, maybe Jesus went fishing. I don't know. Maybe he caught a fish to throw on the fire for them. But he had a meal prepared when they got to the shore. Jesus was providing even now, even in his resurrection appearance, Jesus is still providing for his disciples. Still offering them. Still serving them. This is not just the man Jesus that had already served them in John 13, right? Had already washed their feet and given them this example. This is the resurrected, glorified Lord. He, he obviously looks like Jesus to some extent because they recognize him, but, but he's different. In all the appearances, they, a lot of times they don't even recognize him. He's glorified. He's resurrected the first of the new creation. He is God himself, and he is still serving them. He's still making them a meal, like a cook. Can you imagine that? What king would ever do that? An earthly king. This is God himself. And he serves them a meal on the shore. But he says this. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter, he's a strong guy too. He's really strong, so it says he went up, and he went and grabbed the net, and he just drug it to land himself. He just grabs it. It's full of large fish, 153, and all there were, although there were so many, the net's not torn, and Peter just hauls that thing in. It's 
So Peter's probably pretty ripped. I don't know if we have that in our image of him, but he's probably pretty he's probably pretty stinging strong. That's pretty cool. I love that. But that's Peter. He wants to do. Jesus tells him to do something. He goes and does it. You can see already some of the hints that he's learned his lesson. He saw what the cost of disobedience was. What denial was. I love that Jesus says, bring some of those fish which you have now caught. Because it's a reminder to me of the fact that this is us working together with God. <clears throat> Jesus, did Jesus need their catch of fish? He could have had a thousand fish there to feed them. He could have multiplied it, just like the loaves and the fish he did in John 6. No, he doesn't. He says, that catch you guys just had, come and bring some of it and let's prepare it. It's not just what God had provided. It's not just what they had done in their own work. It was the two of them together made the meal. It was what the Lord had helped them catch and what they had worked for. They'd done the work of casting the net and hauling it in. And Peter, with those big old arms, pulled it all in. Probably looked like Aaron. <laughs> big old arms haul, haul that whole thing in. He did work. He was working for the Lord. And the Lord also provided they were working together. That's the story of discipleship. It's not just God alone and, and we do nothing. And it's not that old mantra of let go and let God where we just do nothing. We're meant to put forth our effort. We're meant to put forth work as we live out the Christian faith. And at the same time, we are powered, like Paul says, powered with the strength that God himself is the one who gives us. That power that we have within us, even that itself is from God. Right? Just like this passage. Without him, they wouldn't have even gotten the catch. Like John 15 says, without Christ, without me, you can do nothing. That's what Jesus says. Here's a reminder. Even the catch they got was on the word and the command of Jesus. But they also worked for him. That's the model of our faith. God is at work, and we must work too. Jesus said it himself, didn't he? And Jesus says, my father is at work, so I too must be at work. We are supposed to follow Jesus' model. Jesus is at work, so should we be. So Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And here's the thing, it's interesting. Maybe it's just because it's really early in the morning. Maybe they can't see very well. But it sounds like they still don't recognize him, almost. Because it says, none of them dared to question him. Who are you? They wanted to. They wanted to say, who, who are you? But it says, none of them dared to question who are you. Why? Because they knew. They knew it was the Lord. John 10, all over again. What do disciples know about the shepherd? What do sheep know about the shepherd? They know his voice. And the disciples know it's him. There's some part of them that wants to say, who are you? But they know. They know his voice. They know it's him. Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them. 
and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus manifested himself to the disciples. Three times in the Gospel of John. Now obviously he'd, he'd also shown himself to Mary, but this is talking about his, his close inner circle, right? The apostles, as we call them in the synoptics. He manifested himself to them three times in the Gospel of John at this point. The first time, remember, without Thomas. Thomas isn't there. The second time, with Thomas. And he makes his confession of Jesus, my Lord and my God. And now the third time in Galilee, where he prepares them a meal. Jesus, Jesus is the hospitable one. We have to remember that, man, again, in this age, it should take us aback, I think, at Jesus' radical hospitality. How does Jesus get introduced to the world in his ministry in the Gospel of John? Only Gospel that tells us that story. Because he's the host of the wedding. Now, he's not the host in earthly terms, but what, what does he do? He makes the water into wine at the wedding. Why? Because he's the banquet master. He's the one who provides the meal. He's the one who sets the table and sets the provisions before them and gives them food and drink to enjoy. The Lord is a giver. And there's anyone in all of history who had a right to take, it's Jesus. But by nature, he is a giver. By the nature of God within him, he is a giver. And so he provides. That's what he does at the wedding. That's what he does here. John 21. And interesting, if we look at the works of John, all the books that he wrote, and really if we look at the whole of Scripture, the whole Bible, how does it end? It ends with a wedding feast. That Jesus provides a wedding feast at his own wedding where he is still the host. And he still is the one providing for all the guests, for all his bride. That's an image that runs through John's writings. Jesus the provider, Jesus the giver, Jesus, the banquet master. He is looking to provide. But he has one provision left. One provision left that we're going to talk about next week. Next week we talk about his provision of restoration. And it is in some ways the most sacred of all. The most sacred of all. I think we've all failed. Some of us maybe more publicly than others. Some of us maybe more seriously than others. The encouragement we find at the end of this gospel is that there's not many more mistakes worse you could make than denying Jesus Christ. And Peter still finds forgiveness from Jesus. That's the power of that story we're going to talk Peter has done one of the worst things you could do. Denying Jesus. Saying he doesn't know him. Letting him go to his death. 
It's all tied together with the worst sin that humanity has ever committed. What is the worst sin humanity has ever committed? We crucified the Lord of glory. Peter is part of that story. Leading to the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. And somehow in God's grace. And we know he's that kind of gracious. How do we know that? On the cross he says it. Father, forgive them. These people who are crucifying me, forgive them. For they don't know what they do. Peter still has a story left. He's still got a story left, and we're going to talk about it next week. I'm not going to get into it now, but if you know me, you know I want to rush to that story. (laughs) If you know me, you know I want to rush to that story, because that's what I believe the church needs more than anything in this day and age. They need to find a way to find the power of looking at deeply sinful people, looking at deeply failing people, look at Christians who have blown up their own lives and tell them, we still love you. There's still a place for you. And most churches would rather wash their hands of those people. And I, I, I set out, I set out my own story as the backdrop for my own, my own failures and my own pain with the church. That was the backdrop of starting this church. It was that people who were hurt by the church would find a home. And they need it. The thing that's so heartbreaking to me about those who have been hurt by the church is so often, I've met so many of them, you know, at seminary, pastors, many, many pastors who will never step foot in church again. At least they've said that. Now, let's pray. Obviously, God does something something miraculous for them. He did for me. He did for me. Mm -hmm. I believe that. But that's what they profess. Never step foot in church again. They need to be reminded that the church, for all her ugliness, for all her uh, evil, for all the ways she often prostitutes herself, that's the language of the Old Testament, to follow after things that are not Jesus, for all its flaws and ugliness, the church is the planet. The church is the bride. This is not something we can burn to the ground and try and do something else. There's no plan B. This is it. This is the one God created. Our job is not to tear it down as much as we may want to. Our job is to redeem it, just like Jesus did. Just like our Lord did. Our job is to redeem what it has become. That's always the call of the Christian. Because our job is to build up. Now we should stand against evil, no doubt. Sometimes the way you do that is by making a place where people can come and fail and be loved, be accepted, be changed by the power of the Spirit, to recognize their pain points, to talk about them, to be open about them, and and to be willing to enter into people's suffering. That's the goal of 
of the, it should be the goal of the church, universal. And it is certainly my heart and my goal for this church. I'll have more to say next week. When we get to the story of Peter. I love that story. That story stuck with me. When I wanted nothing, when I hated the church, this story was still in my mind. Jesus, in his tenderness to Peter, when many, many people in the church uh, told me that I should have nothing to do with it ever again, I heard Jesus' voice and his words. So we'll talk about that next week. But tonight, in honor of Jesus' provision, how perfect we get to share in the communion meal tonight. And that table is emblematic of what Jesus offers us. And it's not just emblematic of what he offers us, baby. Just as individuals, it's emblematic of what he offers us as a community. We're not alone. That we do this together. And that's the reality of communion, is that we get to partake of it, of the Lord's provision. And in this unique way, communion is the story of Lord's, the Lord's provision of salvation, obviously. But what we often forget in American culture is that's not just individual, that's a communal reality. When Jesus is, is talking about the church, which, oddly enough, he doesn't do much in the Gospels, but he's, he recognizes it, excuse me, as a community, as the people of God. And when we get to the New Testament letters by Paul and so on, when he's talking in 1 Corinthians about communion, he's talking about discerning the body. We would recognize who the church is, who the people of the church are, and the connection that they have by his spirit in him. That's the language Paul uses. Connected by the spirit in Christ. And so tonight we'll share in that. Yeah. It's like Gwen. Is your favorite part of church communion? That's what Gwen always says. My favorite part of church is communion. So let me bless you as I close. Heavenly Father, thank you for these people. Lord, each person in here, I pray, I pray, you would reveal yourself again to them in your tenderness and kindness. Would you provide for each person? And Lord, not only would you provide, would you, like this passage says, manifest yourself to them. In your provision, would you not let it go unknown that you are a part of it? And we recognize that all provision comes from you, Lord, but we also want to see it explicitly. And so I pray for each person in here, as you provide for them, as you always do, would you make yourself known? Would you do something miraculous in each of their lives that they can look at and say, that was Jesus. And I pray that you would do that in this coming week as we prepare to talk about this last story of restoration and the end of the Gospel of John. 
I'm so grateful that I had the chance to teach this book to this church. Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to speak these words of life so that we might all again look at all the signs you did and might believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing we have life in your name. Bless these people. Amen. Amen. Amen.